This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. So I was wondering, y'all heard the one about the son uh, who, who didn't go to church? The son who didn't go to church? So this mom, uh, one Sunday morning, she went into her son's room and she said, son, it's time to get up for church. He wasn't feeling it. Just wasn't feeling it. He kind of groaned and rolled over and said, nope, no mom, no, I'm not going to church today. She said, what do you mean you're not going to church? Why not? And he said, I'll give you two reasons. Number one, I don't like those people. And number two, they don't like me. And she replied, son, you know that's no excuse. She said, I'll give you two reasons why you should go. Number one, you're 59 years old. And number two, you're the pastor. I like that one. Um, so, you know, there's this interesting phenomenon uh, that I've noticed on the island. Okay? Uh, I mean, I, I've noticed it in other places in the world too, but it's really pronounced here on the island. Really pronounced here on the island. And when I was working with high school students, uh, that they, they were keenly and acutely aware of this. Um, they did... It seemed everything in their power to avoid this. It's what's known as torophobia. Torophobia. Torophobia is the fear of appearing touristy. The fear of appearing touristy, or perhaps even the fear of being confused for a tourist. Right? It's a real fear. It's a real fear. A fear that drives uh, how the students would dress, how they talk and numerous other facets of their lives. Rule number one, it seemed, was don't jeopardize your localness. Don't jeopardize your localness. Uh, Don't jeopardize it by coming across, especially as a tourist or like a tourist. I saw them do skits about it. I heard jokes about it uh, and countless stories. And I'm I'm using their word word here uh, about the cringiness of coming across this way as a tourist. Many who have grown up their whole lives here, for instance, they've never gone to a place like Diamond Head uh, because that's where tourists go. Right? They, they've stayed away from places like the Polynesian Cultural Center for the exact same reasons. And it's quite, for me, an interesting thing to observe. Right? Um, And so, you know, you can swing to the other side of that too fast, too, um, about people who've only been here really short periods of time, but they start, they start acting local, right? They they start trying to speak pigeon really soon and, and they're really, they butcher it. Um, they start trying to act like they're Kama Aina when they aren't. Um, and this is also, they, they referred to that as cringy. And so, what the students did was they, they created this sort of liminal space, this in-between space, 
where if a non-local appeared uh, too local, then it was immediately noticed and not a very good thing. But you know what? There's a, there's a part of me that, that kind of gets it. I kind of get that. Um, because I, I think the underlying desire is really just the desire to fit in. I think that's what it is, to be part of the in-group. And, and to do that, you, you don't want to be attached to these sort of stigmas. You want to fit in locally and be part of the place that you're in, be part of the people that you're around. You want to have a sort of local pride, right? To take pride in your people and in your place. I get it. I get that. To be local somewhere is a good thing. It shows roots. Uh, it shows rootedness. It shows connectedness. It shows authenticity. It shows a care for your community. It shapes your identity. Being local can be a really, really good thing because the reality is uh, you can be somewhere and not be all there. Right? You can be somewhere and it, it comes off as inauthentic or it comes off as disconnected or even arrogant. Right? But you know what? There's a sense there's a sense in which this is somewhat analogous to both Scripture and church. And what I mean is this, that many people treat Scripture like a tourist instead of a local. And many treat church like a tourist rather than a local. Like tourists, right? They pick out their, their favorite places to go and they treat these places as optional. They, they try to get by on a budget a lot of times. And you know what? Many who identify as Christians treat Scripture, Scripture reading, Scripture study, as optional. They pick and choose where to go in the Scriptures, often just the places that suit them. They try to get by on a budget, so to speak, by, by reading and studying as little as possible. And the same could be said of church. Many pick and choose when to go. They often treat Sunday uh, morning or other aspects of church life as optional. They're, they're fine, right, uh, to leave it, uh, get by on the, the slimmest of margins. And in short, many treat Scripture and church like they're visitors. But we need to be more locals, right, when it comes to both Scripture and church. We need to be rooted in Scripture and rooted in church. We need to raise the bar, right? We need to increase our commitments. We need to increase our commitment. We need not be Torophobes with regard to Scripture and with regard to church. We need to be locals with regard to Scripture and church. And you know what? Our focal passage for this morning kind of gets at this. And so I want us to turn our attention there. It's Revelation uh, 3, 1 to 6, and it says this. And for the angel of the church in Sardis, write these things. The one having the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you're living and you are dead. Be keeping watch over and provide a firm foundation for those who are about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember, therefore, how you received and heard, both kept the covenant and repented. If, therefore, you shall not keep watch over them, I'll come as a thief, and you shall never know at what kind of hour I'll come for you. 
But you have a few names in Sardis, and they who have not soiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they're holy ones. The one overcoming in this manner will be clothed in white clothes, and his name shall never be removed from the book of life. And I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. The one having ears, let him hear. What's the Spirit saying to the churches? And so I want to start uh, now with our word of the week right out of the gate. It's a rhetorical term, a term from the land of rhetoric. It's the word epideictic. Some people say epideictic, that's fine, epideictic. But it's a Greek term, and it refers to a type of writing or speaking or, or form of communication, a form of rhetoric that's concerned with praise and blame, sometimes blame. So the rhetoric of Revelation 3, 1 to 6, that we just read, is mainly epideictic in nature, right? That is, it's praiseworthy mainly. And as we just read in these six verses, there's no real criticism of those in the church or the congregation at Sardis. But there is a warning, right? And I want to discuss that in a moment, this warning. So epideictic rhetoric has to do with the rhetoric of praise in this instance. Jesus' rhetoric here of the church is praiseworthy. Now, there's some things that I want to note this morning. For instance, Jesus says that he's aware of or knows their deeds, the believer's deeds, that they have a name that he knows and that they're alive and dead Another way to put it is that they're the living dead, right? And what he means by that is that despite the fact that they're physically alive, daily they're dying to themselves for the cause of Christ. They, in other words, they're living out their baptisms, dying to self, being raised to Christ daily. Dying to self, being raised to Christ daily. But these living dead, right, they have one major task still set before them. And if they fulfill this one task, this one outstanding task, if they overcome, they'll be rewarded in several ways. And so the major task that lies before them is two-pronged. Reaching out to folks with the gospel and then keeping watch over them. Right? Keeping watch especially over those who are close to becoming believers. Those on the cusp of believing. In other words, we might say that the twofold task that lies ahead is evangelism on the one hand and discipleship or mentorship on the other hand. Now, what we need to note is that this message is being spoken to people who are already believers, already the church, already dying to self daily and living to Christ daily. In other words, this charge is given to mature Christians, mature believers, mature Christ followers. And so for those who overcome, for those who complete this task, this task of evangelizing and discipling, there's a reward. Now, I had a graduate student this week, um, and she was sharing with me about how in a conversation with one of her coworkers, she's in the military, she discovered that this coworker has left the church and basically become an agnostic, perhaps even an atheist, because of the things that he saw and experienced within the church. And so she went on to remark to me, you know, I, I didn't really know what to say as I was listening. She said, I'm not good at evangelizing. And, and my comment was this, 
You know, sometimes just listening can be evangelism. Sometimes just listening can be evangelism. You know, if there's such a thing as the ministry of presence, the ministry of presence, we don't always have to open our mouths. Sometimes, in fact, it's better to just shut up and listen and be present. Right? Of course, you know, there are occasions when we should speak up. There, you know, but there isn't a one-size-fits-all method for evangelizing. I'm convinced of that. It's different for each of us. We all have our own unique gifts. We have our own unique personalities, our unique histories, so on. And they come to bear on how we share our faith and live our faith in front of others. Evangelizing means to make known the good news of the presence of King Jesus in our lives and in our presence. And we want others to know Him and desire to be in His presence because we've all experienced it and we know what it's like. And sometimes we can make King Jesus' presence known simply by being present with someone. And sometimes by talking. Most of the time by living and how we live. And there are many other ways to evangelize. But we're all called. Hear me on this. We're all called in some way to be evangelizing and sharing our faith. It's part of spiritual growth. It's part of spiritual maturity. The text says that for those who move on to these forms of spiritual maturity, they'll have a threefold reward. One, that they'll receive a white robe, a white garment, white clothing. Two, that they'll have their name in the book of life. And three, that Jesus will confess their name before the Father and Spirit. Now, one real quick thing here. And I've touched on this in previous messages, but when we're reading Revelation, okay, in many, perhaps even the majority of instances, wherever we encounter that term angel or angels in the plural, wherever that's used, it's almost always a reference to the Holy Spirit, which is a kind of a tricky thing. Really, the word angel just means messenger. And so in Revelation, the Holy Spirit is the gospel-bearing messenger, right? So remember that. And you'll remember that the Spirit, right? It can be referred to singularly. Sometimes it's referred to in the plural, the seven spirits, the seven spirits before God's throne. And so they're just simply different ways of talking about the Spirit, the word angel, again, just means a messenger or a declarer of a message. And so in Revelation, that's a lot of what the Spirit is doing. He has this message-declaring aspect to him. This is the Spirit who, in our times of defending Jesus as the Messiah, can even give us the words to say about that. So keep that in mind. What this, by the way, is what makes Revelation really difficult and challenging to read sometimes, right? We have to, to, to learn these things and consistently learn to see them in the text. Um, we also need to know that, right, the church is the bride, and it's also the new Jerusalem. It's also the new heaven and earth. And so you have all these different labels for the church, too, right? And, and so you see this numerous times, and these images, they sort of mutually interpret one another. It's kind of fascinating. But it brings up another uh, interesting thing, this white garment. 
a white dress. It's for the bride of Christ, the church, the faithful who make up the church, who go on to spiritual maturity in evangelizing and discipling. And they can be identified as the bride of Christ. And they're going to receive this garment of white. But what's really fascinating is that they'll have their names listed in this book of life. What's the book of life? And from my perspective, at least at the present, it's the wedding contract. It's a wedding covenant. And I'm going to talk more about that in the next few weeks, but it's a really, really interesting thing. The book of life maybe isn't what you've thought it is for all along, right? It's a different thing than maybe you've thought. We'll talk about that in the coming weeks. But the, the bride of Christ will be listed in the book of life. More on that in the future. So we got to just remember these images, they're stacked and they mutually interpret one another. Now, one thing that really caught my attention about these verses is the fact that Jesus refers to himself as a thief. Right? In the message to Thyatira, which we saw last week, we saw the image of Jesus throwing Jezebel down onto the couch and her adulterers down onto the couch. Something that's a very intense and crazy image. We also saw Jesus calling himself a haruspex, this one who dissects entrails, really hearts and minds of believers, but that was a forbidden practice in Judaism. Yet Jesus uses this term of himself. And here we find Jesus referring to himself as a thief. Who among us would dare call Jesus a thief? It's a very interesting way to describe himself. And some say, well, this is the manner in which Jesus will return. That's what it's talking about. He's going to come stealthily or quickly. I think there's some truth to that. Probably that's, that's on point. But, but it might not be all that this means. At least not here. And maybe not even in the Gospels where Jesus uses similar terminology. I want you to think about this with me for a second. Remember, Jesus tells the believers, the mature believers in Sardis, that they have one task ahead of them. This two-pronged task to reach out and evangelize unbelievers and then to watch over them. Part of which is giving them a firm foundation in Jesus' teachings and the ways of Christ. And essentially, he says, don't delay on doing either of those, evangelizing, watching over. Get to it. Don't waste time. Because here's the thing. If I return and you've slacked off, you haven't evangelized, you haven't discipled, you haven't watched over, you haven't provided the firm foundation, then what? You're all going to regret it. You're all going to regret it. If I come and you haven't brought them into the fold and given them a firm foundation, you're going to be left wishing that you had done your task and that you had more time. And essentially, in asking for more time, Jesus is saying, you're implying, you'll be implying, that I robbed you of time. In other words, you're going to be looking at me as if I were a thief. And so when Jesus refers to himself as a thief, Perhaps it isn't from his own perspective, but he's speaking from believers' perspective of how they'll view him when he returns if they hadn't done their job. It's kind of interesting. In the best of scenarios, they will have completed the task before them, and we will have completed the task before us to be and become mature disciples. 
mature followers of Jesus. These verses, they teach us that evangelism and discipleship are marks of spiritual, uh, mature spirituality. So hear me when I say this. Part of the responsibility falls to us, to the church, even to the bridge church. Part of that responsibility falls to us, right? To the church family. You know what? The bridge, we're trying to make some changes. We're trying to move in the right direction. We're trying to fulfill, to uphold our end of things. To uphold our responsibility. We're trying to, to share a common vision for this congregation in this particular locale at this particular time. We're trying to get things in place for our keiki. Uh, we're trying to get things in place for our youth. We're trying to get things in place for our college-age students. And we're trying to preach and teach the Scriptures. We're trying to provide opportunities for growth. We're trying to cultivate a life that is full of goodness, truth, and beauty. We're moving in that direction. And hear me when I say this. The Bridge Church has dropped the ball sometimes. It has. The Bridge Church has dropped the ball a few times. Things have slowed down a few times. But, you know what? I've been working really hard on this. Your church leadership has been working really hard to try to remedy some of these things. So part of that falls to the church. But the other side, right, is that it falls to each of us individually and in our families. So maybe a good place to begin is by asking ourselves one simple question. Am I spiritually mature or am I spiritually immature? And in order to answer that, you're going to have to do some soul searching. And that's why I'm pleading with you to use that spiritual growth measure to chart your growth over the weeks. It's going to show you where you are and where you need to improve. On that card uh, several weeks ago, I also shared the, uh, the bridge's six core values. You can see them listed on the card there. Life-giving preaching, intentional community, spiritual awareness, inspiring goodness, speaking truth, and evoking beauty. And you know what? We need to be taking inventory, each of us, of all those things on a consistent basis. If you're not taking part in that, right, there's a sense in which you're short-circuiting the process. You're short-circuiting what we're trying to do. It's something simple that each of us can do. And I want to encourage you again, to take part in that. Even if you don't want to do it, just buckle down and do it, right? I want you to know I'm going to challenge each of you to step up your game, right? Step up your game. I want you to desire, to desire to step up your game because God desires that. I also mentioned several weeks ago that for this year we have uh, this part of our vision that we're dividing the year up into four quarters, and for the first quarter, the first three months, we're focusing internally on the bridge, on our spiritual growth as individuals and as a community. For the second quarter, we're turning our attention to Foster Village. We're going to launch a prayer campaign for that community, for every single house across the street. We're going to pray for people by name and address, right? The third quarter, we're going to focus on our peer groups, 
and then we're still going to be focusing on Foster Village, and in that last or the fourth quarter, we're really going to turn our hard attention to Foster Village and trying to be doing weekly outreach there. In our new vision statement, we said we wanted to be like bees, pollinating the area and seeing it bloom. So the question was raised, well, how do, what do bees have to do with the bridge? Right? What do bees have to do with the bridge? Well, you can see in this picture here, they do this interesting thing called festooning. Festooning. And if you want another word for the week, there you go. Festooning is this act that bees engage in when they're, they're building a new hive or repairing an old one. Right? And so what they do is they link their arms or their legs and they build the bridge out of their selves, out of their bodies. It's really quite amazing to look at. Right? So without this technique, the bees, they wouldn't be able to repair. They wouldn't be able to build. So while building and repairing, they use each other to measure the distance between the combs. But the point is this. Without each other, they wouldn't be able to do it. The bridge they form together, they do so with themselves, with their whole selves. They're invested. And as I've said before, if we're not on the same page together, this new vision isn't going to go. It's not going to work. We're going to have to work together. We're going to have to put ourselves in. We're going to have to involve ourselves. We're going to have to invest ourselves. We're going to have to be part of the bridge. And we can start very simply, just like those bees, by measuring. Measuring our own spiritual growth and allowing that to help us step up our game. Allowing that to help us become part of the foundation of the bridge. These cards that you have, they simply give us snapshots of our lives at any given moment. But they help us see where we, we, we can stand to grow too. We are called to evangelism and discipleship. That's part of it. But here's the thing. It takes both sides. The church, right, as an entity... And y'all, me, as individuals, being intentional about it. It takes the bridge church being intentional about vision and providing opportunities. But it also takes each of us being intentional about living into those opportunities. You know what? I've been a Christian for over 20 years now. And when I first became a follower of Jesus in high school, uh, I decided at that moment... Then and there, uh, as the only Christian in my family, even to this day, that I was all in. It was all in or nothing. So I, I played soccer in high school. I was a team captain. I kicked for the football team at the same time. But if something was going on with church, my coaches knew that that took precedence, even as a high school student. They knew that if I came to a practice or a scrimmage or a game, or if there was one listed and it conflicted with church, Church wins. And that mindset, it's never changed for me, ever, because I'm committed to Christ and His church. It's not just because I'm a pastor either. I wasn't a pastor as a high schooler. I made this decision long before I ever became a pastor. I read an article recently by a guy named uh, Grayson Gilbert, and it resonated deeply with me. It was titled, 
Church should be your reason for missing everything else. And I want to share some of that with you this morning. I want to put this out there to get you thinking. I'm not sharing it to guilt any of you. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but if it brings some conviction this morning, then you trust that that's the Spirit working in you and on you. That's not me. So I'm still trying to think through what he says here, weigh what he says, but it spoke to me on a number of levels. I want to share something. Here's what Gilbert says. He says, I'm under the unwavering conviction that unless I'm genuinely ill, people are in the throes of death, my legs are rendered inoperable, or we're trapped in our house, church attendance is mandatory. I will not miss it. Even when I've had to miss it under those circumstances, which is quite rare indeed, I've hated it. However, for the sake of being completely transparent, this was not always the case, he says, especially early on in my faith. He says, there was a point in my life where I consistently worked on Sundays. I was a Christian and had been for only a couple of years at that point. Yet, I considered myself to be a faithful Christian who was stuck in between a rock and a hard place. I had no other means of income to make ends meet and care for our newborn. And yet there was a steadily growing conviction in my heart, he says, that I should be coming to church every single Sunday. He continues, while the argument could be made that it was necessary for me to miss due to the circumstances I found myself in, the reality was that I needed to swallow my pride, get another job that could allow me to attend church on a weekly basis, and just be found faithful to come. At some point, he says, the conviction came to me that church was a non-negotiable. What's more than this is that I came to believe church attendance is a non-negotiable for every Christian. The reason this is so is that I believe the New Testament teaches that our time together as believers in formal corporate worship is to be one of the most precious things that we partake in as Christians. I believe that regular attendance is so important because it reveals our hearts and priorities. It reveals much of what we treasure, and likewise much of what we don't. It especially reveals what we understand about the person of Christ and His saving work on the cross. Right then and there is where I lost several readers or listeners, he says. He continues, this is worth sharing. This is one of those areas where many people have it settled in their minds that church attendance is optional. They can miss here and there without any large repercussions to their spiritual well-being and their own families will not be any worse off either. However, he says, the reality is that I've never known a casual attendee to thrive in any meaningful capacity. I've yet to meet another pastor or elder that can testify to the exemplary faith of the professing Christian who abdicates regular church attendance. I've witnessed seasons of growth from them yet I've simultaneously, simultaneously witnessed a stunted growth because invariably they're sporadically absent and the ordinary means that God, from the ordinary means God has given them from their maturity, encouragement, and perseverance in the Christian faith. More often than the stunted growth, though, is no growth at all. Or worse, a backsliding of sorts. He says, we ought not be looking for all the reasons we can miss church. We ought to be looking for all the reasons we should come to church. Instead of trying to find ways we can settle our conscience by neglecting the assembly of the brethren, the brothers and sisters. 
We ought to highlight the very reasons that coming to church regularly is a benefit to our souls. We ought to find delight that we can be united in a local body that functions together in service to one another. And this unique giftedness being exercised among the members of a local church, particularly through the gifting of teachers, we come to grow in maturity as we attain to the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Teachers equip us for works of service and edification in the local body. He says, how can we be found to not only benefit from these things, but be a blessing to our brothers and sisters in Christ if we're regularly missing church? Can we be said to really understand the importance of these things if we're willing to miss out on these benefits in favor of other things, even if only every once in a while? He ends saying, the reality is we cannot. And so I've been pondering two questions this week. One, are we being the best stewards we can with the gift of time that God has given us? You know what? Like everything else in our lives, time is on loan to us. Time is not ours. It's God's. So are we being the best stewards with our time that we can be or are we robbing Christ of time? And are we robbing Christ's church of time? And eventually, we're going to turn around when he's standing in front of us and be found slacking and not ready. The second question is, are we striving to become locals with regard to getting into Scripture and church? Or are we merely behaving like cringy tourists? treating it as optional or not. Gilbert was right, I think. Church should be our excuse to miss everything else. I was, yesterday, Silas's basketball season ended. And the next step up is playing games. The The next age league up requires games on Sunday mornings. I told his coach, look, I'm sorry. He won't be playing on Sunday mornings. That means he's not playing. He's not playing. And the coach said to me, you know, I look at it, me and my wife, we look at it like this, that that kids are our kids are only nine or ten, you know, once. And so, you know, we 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 we'll, for a couple of years we'll do this. You know, as Christy and I were talking about, she's pointing out, look, they have three kids. By the time you do that for three kids, what happened to all those years? And at each stage, not just 12 and 13, but also 14 and 15, and 16 and 17, and so on. What happens to all those years eventually? And so, are we striving to be locals with regard to getting into Scripture and church? Church should be our excuse to miss everything else. Now, I remember hearing once in a sort of sarcastic manner, you only miss church because you're somewhere else doing something more important kind of cuts, cuts to the heart. When we do this, we're sending a message to our keiki. Right? We're sending a message to our youth. We're sending a message to our brothers and sisters in the congregation. I got something more important to do than be with you. So maybe we can be like bees instead and realize that each of us is critical to the bridge. Each of us is important to the bridge. And maybe like the bees, 
make sure that we're here and here for each other and here for our community. And that, I think, would be a great sign of spiritual maturity. Amen? If you're able, let's stand together this morning and receive the benediction. Facing your palms up, uh, receive this blessing. And now may the Lord bless this church and keep it. May He make His face to shine upon it. May He lift His gaze upon it and give it peace. Amen, brothers and sisters. Go in peace, choosing 